Good morning, Redemption Arcadia. Stand and sing with us.
God is always with us. He's all around us. Let's sing of that today. There's a grace when my heart is under fire. Another way when the walls are closing in. And when I look at the space between where I used to be and this reckoning, I know I will never be alone. There was another in the fire standing next to me. There was another in the water. Holding back the seas And should I ever need reminding Of how I've been set free There is a cross that bears the burden With another died for me There is another in the fire And oh All my dead left for dead to need I'm no longer a slave to my sin anymore And should I fall in the space between Love what made to me and this reckoning Either way I will bow to the things of this world And I know I will never be alone there is another in the fire standing next to me. There is another in the waters holding back the seas. And should I ever need reminding what power set me free? There was a grave that holds no body, and that power lives in me. There is Darkness bow to him. I can hear the roar in the heavens as the space between verses. I can feel the ground shake beneath us as the prison walls gave in. Nothing stands between us. Nothing stands between us. There is no the name but the name that is Jesus. He who was and still is and will be through it all. So come with me in the space between all the things unseen and this reckoning. I know I will never be I know that's where you'll be There is another 
Thank you for worshiping with us. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we so welcome you this morning as we worship, as we pray, as we fellowship together, as we give sacrificially, and as we study your word. I don't know the circumstances and conditions of everyone that's present with us today, but I do know because we live in a fallen world that's disordered by sin and rebellion that um, I suspect many of us are facing a combination of maybe physical ailments and ills, emotional distress, or significant life challenges. But although our individual circumstances may vary, we do know that our lives are nonetheless all equally shaped by the inescapable truth that every one of us will never fully flourish here or in the hereafter unless we enthusiastically proclaim that you are our Lord and Savior, and more importantly, that we actually think, talk, and act like we really mean it. So, Father, in light of these essential truths, please bless our time together here with your encouragement and with your wisdom. Please draw us closer to you in holiness and in service to your people, all to your glory. Amen. So you were asked to sit prematurely. Now would you please stand and greet one another and in order to invade the privacy of those you're greeting, ask what they're most looking forward to this week. Okay, time's up. No more chit-chat. This is not a social club. So, greetings all. My name is Steve Wheeler. I am one of the non-democratically selected elders of this church. So it's my privilege to welcome you here if you're new or if you're part of the post-COVID quarantine folks that are coming back to us. We're so delighted to see you here. As you may know, Redemption is one church with 10 congregations uh, spread out throughout Arizona. Uh, We are gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe all of life is... uh, uh, What was that? All All for Jesus. Jesus. Yes, absolutely. So thank you for that. Uh, A couple of announcements. Uh, First of all, uh, in an attempt to help... uh, allow you to preserve your anonymity or to uh, hide ill-gotten gains. Uh, The uh, elders, by a vote of three to two, I dissented, uh, are now allowing you to use cryptocurrency for your tithes and offerings, (laughs) including Bitcoin and Ethereum and and the like. And if you have questions regarding that, ask one of the financial advisors in our church. 
Uh, actually, we did not do that. We haven't even talked about doing that, but I just wanted to get you attention for the other announcements. The most important of which is uh, in this month of June, we are still continuing with our support of the Hope Women's Center. Uh, as you may know, that organization has been helping women throughout the valley for at least 25 years on a variety of really important missions. And this month, we're going to be supporting them by collecting diapers. And you can see some of the huggies in the back. Uh, I am told that if enough people contribute diapers by next Sunday, Frank will appoint one of the younger pastors to actually display and model one. So it's to, to your encouragement that we actually bring in the diapers. So that, that's, the, uh, that's the only important announcement, but now it's a, a real distinct pleasure. We, we have a video that was prepared by Redemption Central uh, of one of our members here, and it, it's a great video. I think you'll find it most encouraging and moving, so please watch. It's better to give every seed seven rabbit without friends. Making friends makes life a whole lot easier. I used to go through a phase where everyone wasn't very nice with me, so I didn't want to do anything. So I wanted to be locked away. Hi, everybody. My name is Clark. I'm 29 and I have Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. It basically just destroys all my muscles. I used to walk when I was a kid and then I hit seven and quit walking. Cliff, you have my blanket? Okay, we are ready to roll. I'm gonna, I'm gonna float around you and just keep the camera in your face. Cliff might break the lens, so you might wanna check it every once in a while. I got an extra. Ah, <laughs> uh, nice. Can you pull my right hand back? Thanks for the love, buddy. <laughs> You're welcome. You're so sweet. When my disease takes away stuff I love to do, so it makes it a lot harder when it takes things away you love. Not being able to do anything, it makes your mind go very dark. Sometimes coming to church, it helps my dark phases. Can you pull my right hand back? Where do you want it? The top, lean back. There we go. Okay, right hand back. There we go. You see? Ish. Ish. That's good enough for now. My favorite part of week one is that's a hard one to go with. Probably hanging out with my nurses. When my nurse Cliff comes to take care of me we play games and coming to church to see all my friends. Jesus gives me days where I have people like Cliff to get me out so we can live life to the fullest. Some days my anger will take over and nothing actually helps it.
just takes hours until it goes away. I've noticed sometimes if I pray, it actually helps with that sometimes. And then I also have my nurses and Cliff around to help me. So I try not to stay dark. My nurse Cliff down in tent with me to help me along on how to talk to people and get better at becoming more social. God helps turning my gears back to where they need to go. Just a little more practice and you can do it. And singing at the same time? Too hard. Oh, that's good for you. Challenge the mind. Hey, look, there's JT. JT! Good, how are you? I can't it's been a while. I know, it has. Yeah, I've finally been able to get up and come today yeah. since the last couple of weeks my body has. I want to cooperate. Cliff, can you turn me around? Is that JJ? I thought I heard him. What's up, JJ? It's been a little bit. I know, it's yeah. been a while. I know. Hey, look, you got the glasses. Yeah, yeah, You're I copying me I now. Know. What else is new? A whole lot of nothing. I just had doctor's appointments, a wheelchair appointment, and my stomach hasn't been cooperating lately. Sorry about that. That sucks. Yeah, it's not fun at all. So, but we do what we can do. Yeah. And now I'm finally here. Yeah. Cool. Let's do some, ca some calendar management. Calendar management, that sounds interesting. We like Apple calendars, we don't know how to use them. Cliff, you're just old, so it comes with the territory. Hey, Only the hey. young guys know how to hey. use Apple phones. <laughs> Bite your tongue. That's yeah. true. That is, as long as you guys can go back home. Cliff, right. let's do about three weeks. We can do my breathing medicine earlier since I get it done earlier in the morning. Do you want to add an alert to your buddy or no? Yes. And we'll see each other at church. So we can... Okay, Cliff, let's go bug some more people awesome. before we head out. Yep, see ya. Right, See you later, JJ. Good, how are you? So good. Hello. It's so good to see you. Good to see you. You too. Doesn't need a lot. Doesn't need a lot. Hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Hey, Cliff, hand me my joystick back. We're going to do something. How old, baby? Seven months. Wow. Goes by really quick. It sure does. It sure does. Yeah. I, I have a nine-month-old at home. Cliff, like, Cliff, like, I got her attention. Look, Cliff, I got her attention. Yeah. <laughs> you want to see? What is that? What is that? Cliff, look, like, she's squeezing my fingers. Look at it. She's like, I'll hang on to this. We're good. This is cool. I can hang with this. You like this little robot? <laughs> Cliff, look at her. Cliff, look at her. Everything goes in the mouth. Yeah. Put that in there. That way nothing else gets in. Put like she likes my robot. That's awesome. That was the first time a baby's ever seen my robot up close. Mm-hmm. We don't see too many babies, so it's a first for me. 
I wish she's not scared of sabbatical things. She's normally scared of beards, so yeah. she must just like you. I'm you. better looking, Trey. <laughs> I'm just better be. looking. That's, That's all it is. It's a Trey joke. It's a Trey <laughs> joke. Dad joke, which Dad I, now joke's I'm allowed coming. to say. They're coming. Uh, oh, yeah. Dude, you're about to be in your 30s, so you're going to have to start pulling out some dad I'm jokes. I'm not about to. I got until November. Can you not age me so fast? Jeez. <laughs> okay, I'll slow it down. I'll slow Three it down. decades, dude. Tell me. Do yeah. a long time. And for this disease, that's a record clip. Sure is. Yeah. Very well. That's right. I'm still hanging in there. Getting the milestones. Yeah. Cliff keeps me alive, so we're good. Yeah, I taught yeah, Cliff he's not allowed to be anybody else's nurse until I pass away. So he's stuck with me forever. Longevity, buddy, hey. I just want everybody to see me as a normal human being, not some kind of random wheeled object. That I'm normal like everybody else. I just have four wheels, and most people don't give me that time of day with it. She doesn't know what she's doing. Oh, you can do it. Crawl, little one, crawl. Crawl like the wind. There she goes. Now she's on the move. Crawl. You can do it. Keep calling. There she goes. She's making a move for it. She is on. Look her out. Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Today's reading is from Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twelfth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with more certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. 
Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen, to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the, the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Brennan. Morning, Arcadia. Um, want to uh, just acknowledge and thank uh, Clark and his family and Cliff for allowing Redemption Church to um, put together that video. Great testimony. Uh, it's something that was shown at the Leadership Collective last month and is uh, likely going to be shown in every congregation throughout uh, Redemption Church. And uh, we just really appreciate uh, you guys. So thanks for doing that for us. Uh, I also wanted to mention, weird segue, but I wanted to mention, I've been encouraged this week by how many uh, people have started to use the word dank in their conversations. I really appreciate that. Thank you for uh, listening to uh, what the pastor has to say on Sunday morning. So... Um, good morning. My name is Frank. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we are going to start a brand new book today. We're taking a nine-week break from John. When we started the Gospel of John, one of the things we mentioned was that we were going to take intermittent breaks throughout the Gospel of John because it could take a while to get through uh, appropriately the Gospel of John, and we felt like we needed some breaks along the way. And so here's, here's yet another break that we're taking from John we're going to be doing nine weeks in the book of uh, Nehemiah. It's an Old Testament book. And what we're going to do today is we're going to introduce the book and we're going to do chapter one, which is what Brennan just read. And I want to explain why this is important and also why I specifically like introductions into books. Uh, when I first became a Christian... In 1987, some of you have heard the longer version of this story, but uh, I, had, I did not grow up in the church, and I knew absolutely nothing about the Bible. There wasn't anything that I knew about the Bible. And I started to go to church with Jackie at North Phoenix Baptist Church. That's where God saved me, and I started going to some of the Bible studies there. And through no fault of their own, I don't fault them, but the Bible studies that I would go to there there was, I believe, this assumption that everybody in the room already knew everything about the Bible. And so uh, being in these Bible studies, I struggled. Uh, when, when they would say, turn to Ephesians, and everybody's there in five seconds except me, I mean, I'm like, is that a, an ancient Old Testament skin disease? What is an Ephesian? I don't even know what that is. You know, it was a little bit frustrating. And so um, about a year and a half into my walk with God. And I, but I loved church there, and, and, and Richard Jackson was, some of you might remember him, he was, uh, even if I didn't understand exactly what he was saying, he was certainly entertaining. So um, at any rate, uh, a friend called me up one day and said, hey, there's this new marketplace Bible study. I think you'd really like it. 
this guy's a great teacher, you need to go. And I, and I heard the words Bible study, and I said, nah, not, no thanks. So he called seven weeks in a row inviting me to this noon Thursday Bible study. And I ended up finally going because the seventh time he called me, he said, I'm so sure you'll like it that if you don't, the following week, I will take you to Durant's for lunch on me. And I said, I can sit through anything for 45 minutes for free lunch at Durant's. And I went, and that was, when, that was my introduction to Tom Schrader, one of our founding pastors. That's the first time I ever heard him teach. And you need to understand, I never collected on my lunch from Durant's. This guy was the greatest, is the greatest Bible teacher I've ever uh, been around. Interestingly enough, he was uh, teaching out of the Old Testament book of Daniel, which is... Daniel happens right before Nehemiah and is, in, is connected in many ways to the book of Nehemiah. But he's teaching out of the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And the first thing I thought was, oh, great, an Old Testament book. I don't know. I, I know even less about the Old Testament than the New Testament. I don't get the Old Testament. Well, after 45 minutes with Tom teaching about Daniel, I started to get it. Um, he told me first, told us, there, it was a room uh, that held 200 people, and there must have been 225 people there. And uh, he, he explained, first of all, where to find Daniel in your Bible. So that was nice. I didn't feel out of place. Uh, then he explained everything about the book of Daniel before he dove into the actual text. He explained the historical context, the political context, the military context, the cultural context context. He explained all the characters, who King Nebuchadnezzar was and why he was important. He explained the relationship of Babylon and Assyria and Judah and Jerusalem and even the Egyptians. He explained all of that. And then as he took us through the story of Daniel, which we were in chapter 1 at the time, he also explained how what Daniel was going through is similar in many ways to what people of faith today are going through. So suddenly, this 2,700-year-old story had relevance and application to me. And literally, I was sitting forward the whole 45 minutes thinking that Tom was just sitting in his living room having a conversation with me alone with these other 225 people. It was remarkable. I, and, and when I was, and by the way, at the end, he bridges the gap to contemporary Christianity, and then, he, and then he talks about how we see the shadows of the gospel in Jesus Christ in the book of Daniel. And when he stopped uh, after 45 minutes, I was angry that I had to go back to work. It was the best thing that had happened to me that week. Uh, and so I, I began to understand the importance of context, all kinds of context in reading the Bible. So often people would say, just go read your Bible. It'll be fine. God will speak to you through that. Well, yes, he will. But if you prepare yourself for reading the Bible a little bit better, he's going to honor that and bless that. And so I love introductions to books of the Bible. If you don't have a study Bible, I would recommend that you, you get one. Uh, I, have a, I have several study Bibles. A study Bible has all the text of the Bible, but it also has some commentary about some of the verses, which is helpful. But even more helpful, a good study Bible is going to have a two, three, four, five, sometimes six-page essay of introduction into the biblical book in order to give you the purpose of the book, who wrote the book, when was the book written, the context, historically, militarily, politically, socioeconomically. It lays all the groundwork. It gives you all the major theological themes that you're going to encounter in the book. And that's why introductions are important. Context matters. History matters. 
Purpose and situation matter. Theology matters. And on that Thursday that I went to Priority Living of Arizona, the, the Bible, that's when the Bible really came to life for me. The Holy Spirit used Tom for that. So let me, let me give you another example. Um, we went to like one of the first, went to our first movie theater since COVID yesterday, like one of the first times. It, it, was, it was kind of fun to actually go to the movies, you know, and have real popcorn and stuff like that. Anyway, um, one of the things I like going to, about going to movies is I like to get there early and watch the previews. Anybody else? I guess they're called trailers now. I'm not with it. But in my day, they were called, they were called previews. And so uh, one of the, Jackie was getting some stuff. And she, when she came back to the chair, the movie was just starting. And she'd missed the previews. And the first thing she asked me when she gets back to the chair was she said, anything good coming up? Anything that we need to see? We love the previews, you know? But I've also noticed, and maybe you've had this experience too, you watch a preview and you get really excited about seeing a movie because of something they showed in the preview. And then you go to the movie, and the movie is absolutely not about anything that was in the preview. The preview has misled you. In fact, I've been to movies where they've actually cut the scene they put in the preview from the final movie that you had to pay for and actually see in the theater. That's, isn't that annoying when they do? I thought this movie was about something else, but it's about uh, this. What we're doing here today with chapter one is we're previewing this book of Nehemiah. But the purpose of the preview is not to mislead you, but to make sure that the study of this book delivers on what is promised. That's the story of rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem after the Jews are being repatriated after the Babylonian exile into Jerusalem and Judah, telling that story of all the challenges and troubles and struggles that they had, uh, their commitment to God, and, of course, the fact that they often broke their commitment to God. So let's preview it a little bit. I'll give you the historical timeline. Some of you have sat through this before at various places, but it's important to know about the historical timeline. The book of Nehemiah is not written in perfectly chronological order. There's a couple places where it jumps around a little bit for purpose of narration and getting the theological points across, but it is important to understand the timeline of history leading up to that. Um, about <clears throat> 450 years after God moved his people out of Egypt and into the promised land, in 922, Israel had a civil war, essentially, and the, the nation of Israel split into the northern kingdom with 10 tribes and the southern kingdom with two tribes. The northern kingdom was called Israel, the, uh, the southern kingdom was called Judah, and the southern kingdom had the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And Jerusalem was the capital in the southern kingdom. Samaria was the capital in the northern kingdom. And the people began to rebel against God like they normally do. And so God began to warn the people through uh, his prophets, uh, but the people of Israel didn't listen. So exactly 200 years after the split into the northern and southern kingdom, in 722 BC, uh, the Assyrian army, being used by God as a tool of judgment on his people, came marching into the northern kingdom and sacked the northern kingdom and, and distributed all the Jews all over, uh, all over the conquered lands and, and made them intermarry and, and, and all of that. But God stopped the Assyrians at the Judah border, the southern border, because he wanted to give the southern kingdom a chance to repent and become God's people again and uh, people of obedience. And they did. For a while, the southern kingdom recovered and quit rebelling. But of course, they began to fall back into sin. And so God needed to use 
Babylon as the instrument of judgment for the southern kingdom, Judah. And so he sent the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, uh, into Judah in 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and 586 B.C. That last one was the total obliteration of the capital city, uh, Jerusalem. But it was in 605 B.C., the original, the first invasion of Judah, where the Babylonians carried tens of thousands of Jews back to Babylon and, and made them uh, live there in Babylon as exiles. It's known as the great 70-year uh, uh, Babylonian exile. And so that precedes what happens in Nehemiah. In the year 539, something like 70 years after the original exile started, King Cyrus of Persia, which was just to the east of Babylon, they invaded Babylon. Babylon was thought of as absolutely indestructible because they had this incredible wall that nobody could figure out how to bring down or get through. But the uh, Persians figured out the Euphrates River runs through Babylon. If we reroute the Euphrates River, maybe we can get in through the, the riverbed where the wall isn't. And so that's what they did, and they essentially... Uh, took Babylon. That's how they uh, took Babylon. That was in 539 B.C. You can, it, it, Daniel chapter 5 is actually when that happens. We, we can date Daniel chapter 5 to five, actually October 31st. They didn't celebrate Halloween back then, but it was October 31st, uh, 539 when that happened. By the way, 2 Kings, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Lamentations will give you a pretty good background of all of this Babylonian exile uh, stuff. So when Cyrus invades Babylon and conquers Babylon, what he does is he goes to the Jews who had been living there for decades, and he said, you guys, I'd, I'd like you to go back to Jerusalem and, and resettle Jerusalem and repatriate uh, Jerusalem. And many of the Jews did. They started in 539 all the way through the rest of that uh, decade heading back to Jerusalem. Some of the Jews actually moved further east to Susa, which was the capital city of Persia, and that's where we get the book of Esther, which is a wonderful book. Um, but he said, you can go back now. And, and, and this Persian idea of repatriation rather than captivity or dispersion of conquered people was considered a smart move historically because it would inspire loyalty from the people that you allowed to go back to their homeland and it would set up a new tax base for you there as well. Uh, there's also some talk that Cyrus was nervous about the Egyptians, and so he wanted a little bit of a buffer between Egypt and, and Persia, which is weird because it's 1,200 miles and they didn't have any, any of the modern conveniences then. But nevertheless, he was a little bit worried about Egypt, so maybe it was a, a nice um, uh, buffer. So what we learn in, in Scripture is that when the Jews start to move back into Jerusalem, uh, Zerubbabel was part of that leadership, and a guy named Ezra was also part of that leadership. Uh, Ezra is the book right before Nehemiah in your Old Testament, and Ezra was charged with going back to help rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was flattened. They needed to rebuild the city, but they also needed to rebuild the house of God. And it takes them a while to finish the temple. It, the temple was finished in 516, so it took a couple of decades to build the temple. He had a lot of opposition from neighbors who were not happy with the Jews moving back in to that territory. And so Ezra finally finishes the temple in 516, and Jerusalem tries to continue to rebuild, but it is really tough. And for decades, they went without a wall. 
And we need to understand that ancient cities had to have a wall. And I'll talk way more about the wall in a minute. But they had to have a wall. And they, they just couldn't get the wall rebuilt. And, and, and I want you to understand now, just stop here and let's listen to the context, okay? First of all, God's people are returning from exile. And they see this as God's triumph over the Babylonians, over their exile. This is God's will, and it's the fulfillment that Moses had in Deuteronomy 30. It's the fulfillment for them of Moses' vision. So here's that Deuteronomy chapter 30 vision. God will restore to his people, Israel, their past fortunes and mercies. So they think this is all part of God's plan and they're going to go back to Jerusalem and it's going to be easy peasy. But like us, we think that if this is God's will and mercy, it should be easy, but it is not. What we find out is the post-exilic life in Jerusalem and in the greater Judah area is dangerous and discouraging. It's actually worse than being exiles in Babylon. Upon return from exile, we need to know this. The people of God, the Jews, are a weak minority community living among a now powerful pagan majority, hostile to them, and it's very different than those glory years that those people heard about prior to the exile. Kind of sounds a little bit like the church today in a post-Christian culture, if you think about it that way. So this book is good for us. So here are the dangers that they face. I've got a little slide for this. There are three major dangers that the repatriated exiles are facing. Number one, they are facing potential and real attack and violence from their neighbors. They were constantly being attacked and threatened by their neighbors who didn't want them there. Second of all, there's the threat of religious syncretism because of the pressures of their neighbors. What is religious syncretism? It's when a strong culture comes into a community of faith and says, you really can't um, expect that you're going to be able to live your faith the way you want to live it. You're going to have to start incorporating some of our culture into your faith. You're going to have to dilute your faith. You're going to have to dilute your doctrine. You're going to have to start doing things differently than what your God is apparently telling you to do. That's religious syncretism. Just add on a bunch of stuff from the culture and it'll be, it'll be fine. Okay? Because you certainly don't want to offend the culture, you people of faith, would you? I mean, literally, they were having those conversations with them. And then here's the third danger. They were in danger because of what I would call decades of poor muscle memory and poor emotional memory. In other words, every time they would go to try to build the wall, they would face opposition from their neighbors. And, and the opposition would prevail. And so now, every time they go to build the wall, the minute anybody even hints at giving them some trouble about rebuilding the wall, they just throw down their tools and go back to what they were doing. They, they had developed this defeatist attitude over the decades. And so God needs Nehemiah to go in and lead the people in the midst of this danger and discernment, uh, discouragement. They need a wall. But they need, like us in the church today, they need to understand that God's will and God's call in their lives does not guarantee that things are going to be easy and comfortable. And at least Nehemiah understood this. We must also get used to the challenge of being God's people. 
It's amazing as you read scripture how often scripture reminds us of the challenges that we are going to face in this world. James says it at the beginning of his letter to some people who had faced some persecution and opposition. He said, consider it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter trials of various kinds, because you know the testing of your faith will produce something good, perseverance, patience, steadfastness, and endurance. So the book of Nehemiah tells of the rebuilding of the city wall for the purpose of completing the return and restoration of God's people to God, their land, his covenant, and his life-giving word. Interesting that the temple took decades to rebuild. The wall, we find, just took 52 days, and it was a much bigger project than the temple. That's interesting. The temple was rebuilt, finished in 516. The wall was completed in 444 BC. That's a long time between the temple and the wall they went, 72 years. In both Ezra and Nehemiah, there is some overlap in their lives. Both of them highly value God's word. They highly value the public reading of God's word. They highly value obedience to God's word. They highly value God's covenant with his people, and therefore they highly value the commitment that God's people should make to God. Uh, <clears throat> many people see Ezra and Nehemiah as one book with the same editor. Much of what is written in the two books of Ezra and Nehemiah come directly from Ezra and Nehemiah's journals or diaries as they recorded everything that they did and saw. But it also needed to be assembled. And there is other narrative in these books that likely does not belong to either Ezra or Nehemiah, but was part of what the editor wrote in there to kind of fill some of the uh, uh, gaps. And together, Ezra and Nehemiah provide what scholars say is the most reliable historical res uh, resource for the post-exilic period, especially in the 5th century BC. Now, these books are also, in ways similar to the Gospels of Jesus in the New Testament, kind of selective about what is included in the narratives. Because the idea, ultimately, is to point to God's goodness and sovereignty in directing the rebuilding of the city, the temple, and the wall, and to show God's ultimate control not only over just his people, but his sovereignty over the whole world, including the neighbors of Jerusalem. And what we're going to look at, the book of Nehemiah, much of it is filled with conflict and villains and heroism and opposition and perseverance. It's ripping good stuff that will have a lot of application for us today. So let's look at uh, chapter 1. We'll start with the first three verses of uh, the book and uh, kind of set the context again from there. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. So here you go. We know that what he's, what's being recorded here is actually coming from the journal of Nehemiah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. <clears throat> Some of you know this. Chislev is December. Uh, and in the 20th year, so that reference to the 20th year, what does that mean? It's the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, who is uh, the Persian king, and it might not surprise you to find out that Artaxerxes is actually the son of King Xerxes, the same King Xerxes who is in the book of Esther. And in fact, Esther is Artaxerxes's, that's hard to say, Artaxerxes's stepmother. So there's right away we see some connection between Nehemiah and Esther. So it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, brothers in the faith, in, in Judaism, 
came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Yeah, for almost 100 years total, okay? So, by the way, in case you're interested, the, the name Nehemiah means God comforts. So God has always got something going on with these names here. So Jerusalem's neighbors are not treating the rebuilt city or the people of Jerusalem well, and so Jerusalem needs some help. Uh, the people of Jerusalem are being bullied, and they have been bullied for decades. There's no functioning wall, and ancient cities have to have a functioning solid wall for defense and for distinction. And the last thing the neighboring cities and nations around Jerusalem would want is for the, the rebuilt city and the rebuilt temple to have an effective wall. So verse 3 actually references one of the many attempts some 12 years earlier to rebuild the wall, but it had failed as Jerusalem's neighbors sabotaged the effort, and you have, again, another example of this muscle and emotional memory where all they, really, at this point, all they had to kind of do was go boo, and they go, all right, we won't build the wall. Okay. Well, it's finally now time to rectify this lamentable situation. But here's the question. Why do these guys go to Nehemiah with this problem? What makes him so special? What can he do He's 1,100 miles away from Jerusalem. What in the world is he going to be able to do? By the way, Susa is present-day Iran. Some irony there. Okay. Well, we find out in the last verse of this chapter, Nehemiah is the Persian king's cupbearer, and by way of being his cupbearer, he's also a confident, confidant of his. So what does a cupbearer do if you don't know what a cupbearer is? Well, one way to instigate a rebellion or a coup against your government was to poison the king through his food or drink. And so ancient monarchs, once they saw this happen a few times, they came up with an idea. This is what you call best practices. They would share this with other monarchs. They said, let's get somebody and appoint him as the cupbearer, and he will taste test all the food before it's actually brought in to me. And, and make sure that the food is okay. So a cupbearer taste tests all the food and drink that comes to the king. And the king is not supposed to eat anything that the cupbearer has not eaten or drank first, and probably shouldn't eat anything that makes the cupbearer sick or die. Okay, that's the idea. And I know I said taste test, but what Nehemiah is doing is not looking for palate-pleasing favors. He's protecting the king. That's his whole life. His job description has one bullet point, protect the king, okay? So this position in ancient cultures required some really heavy stuff. First of all, the king had to thoroughly trust his cupbearer, and it was rare that the king would let the cupbearer out of his sight for very long. So the cupbearer was a constant companion of the king, and so the cupbearer also had to be well-versed on the protocol, tact, and decorum and frankly, he had to be a person of great intellect and personality. He could never violate any of the royal decorums, which were pretty strict. And so as a result, many kings and their cupbearers became very close friends. And the cupbearer had to be someone who was willing to give up his life for the king, both literally and practically. So literally, you could die in this job. And, but, but practically, here you go, you also didn't have any sort of life outside of the You had no life outside of the job. This was not an 8 to 5 job. It wasn't 60 or even 80 hours a week. 
It was your life. There was no such thing as life balance if you were a cupbearer. But if things went well, you got to eat the best food and, the, and, the, and drink the best wine in, in the nation, and you lived very well. You lived in the citadel and in the palace of uh, the king, and you had all of the modern conveniences of that. Okay, so you had all the ancient conveniences that were available. One other thing that most cupbearers did is they were awful, often the equivalent of the king's CEO. So the cupbearer would also keep the books for the king and the nation. So it's not a bad position to have. Think about this. It's government employment with government empl uh, uh, benefits, and you have great influence with the king. The only challenge you probably had was getting life insurance. Not many un underwriters would <laughs> go for that. Okay, But why a confidant of the king? Well, it's because kings rarely had somebody that they felt like they could open up to. But with the cupbearers being around so much and this relationship being developed, they, start, they would start to open up to, to their cupbearers. So the kings would often confide in their cupbearers in ways that no one, not even their wives, would be privy to. And as a result, the cupbearer often became a source of counsel, wisdom, and input for the king regarding all sorts of matters, political matters, military matters, even romantic matters. The cupbearer knew everything. So these guys come to Nehemiah because he has the king's ear, and he has, probably has the king's heart. And Nehemiah could probably get things done for Jerusalem that no one else could. So they tell Nehemiah that the city is broken down because the wall is broken down, and they needed help. Nehemiah is, of course, a Jew, and so he recognizes the importance of this. He also understood the fact, because Susa obviously had a great wall around it, and they were... Uh, he understood the history of, of taking down Babylon because of uh, being able to breach their wall. Ancient cities could not survive without a solid functioning wall. And military weapons were specifically developed in order to circumvent uh, the city walls. They're called siege machines. I got a couple of drawings for you here. Two kinds of siege machines. There's this catapult, which you just start lobbing stuff into uh, the city, over the city walls. And then there's this thing called the battering ram. The battering ram was actually more effective, but it was more costly in terms of, of um, uh, human resources because uh, whenever the outlooks on the wall would see a battering ram come to them, they would start boiling buckets of oil, and they would take the oil up there, and as the, the guys would run the battering ram into the wall, they'd pour buckets of boiling oil on the guys. So it kind of deterred people from using the battering ram, and that's why they developed the catapult. It took longer for the catapult, but if... You know, if you live through every single night being bombed by these big stuff, well, you get the idea. So this is why you didn't want just a wall, but you wanted a honking big, thick, and strong wall. And again, that's why the Babylonian kings thought that they were secure. Their wall was 80 feet high and was so thick and so strong that they used to have chariot races around the top of their wall, four chariots abreast. I mean, it was amazing. So the fact that it got breached is kind of interesting. Anyway, Nehemiah is told that Jerusalem has a wall problem and they need help. So, what happens next? That's the last eight verses in our chapter. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments... Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you. Day and night, 
for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your, your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, th uh, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sights of this man. That would be Artaxerxes the king. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. So the news obviously upsets Nehemiah. And we would think that that would spur him into immediate action. And it does spur him into immediate action, but not the action that we might think. So what is Nehemiah's immediate action? What does he do in response? He prays. First thing he does as he mourns the trouble the people are in, he turns to God. He doesn't turn to his business plan. He doesn't turn to his social network. He doesn't turn to his education. He doesn't turn to his intelligence. He doesn't turn to a book that some other more successful cupbearer wrote and get wisdom from that. He turns to God. And notice, God is already, had already, I want you to understand the historical context. God had already sent the Jews into exile, as he said he would, because they sinned against him and did not follow his commands and covenant. And 70 years later, God has redeemed them from the exile. And yet, Nehemiah, in verses 7 through 10, continues to acknowledge and confess those sins that got them in trouble in the first place. Because it's part of their history. Like it or not, it's part of their identity. And being reminded of it helps God's people to learn from it and hopefully prevent it from happening again. Glossing over past sin is not helpful. Now, living in shame and guilt about past sin, yeah, that's not good either. And if you want to know a little bit more about that, read Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says, don't, don't live in shame and guilt over your past sin. That's a problem as well. But that doesn't mean that we should gloss over past sin or pretend it didn't happen. We're called to constant confession. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said the whole, of uh, the whole of the Christian life is one of repentance and confession. And also, check this out. Nehemiah prays about this for four months before he finally gets the opportunity to bring it up to King Artaxerxes. Four months go by between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. So do I really have to squeeze the teaching out of this here for us? All right, I'll do it. Here you go. Here you go. Steve even prayed a prayer about this, okay? You know, we live in a fallen, corrupt world where sin has its way and things are hard and we're encountering all kinds of very difficult things. A good plan of action when life sucks is to seek God and be patient. Seek God and be patient. Now, God might work just like that. He might work in a nanosecond. That'd be great. But he might also say, you need to wait. You need to develop that patience muscle. You need to develop that perseverance muscle. So seek God and wait. And that's what Nehemiah does. 
And then let's look quickly at the pattern of the prayer. Not every prayer necessarily needs to fit this pattern, but it's a good pattern and one that I'm not sure we use too often in our personal prayers. Here's the there's four things. First of all, acknowledge who God is. Acknowledge who God is, his bigness, his love for his people, his sovereignty, his faithfulness. Second of all, confess both personal and corporate sin. Third, rest in and on God's faithfulness, hopes, and promises. Remind yourself of God's faithfulness, his promises. And then, and then, maybe a specific petition or request for favor and blessing. That's the very end of his prayer where he says, grant me favor when I go and talk to this guy. And that last part, number four, I just just want to ask some of you in, in here now. Do you have someone in your life, probably in the marketplace, with way more power, control, and influence that you than you have? And you perceive that this person is somehow an obstacle to what you need to do and maybe even a danger to you? In Nehemiah's case, if he were to walk into the presence of the king and appear to be sad or aggrieved, or if he walked in and even brought up the topic, if he initiated the conversation, if he did any of this in the king's presence, it would have pretty negative consequences. The king could just have him executed. It's it's the main reason that in Esther chapter 4, when her uncle Mordecai comes and says, you got to go to your husband, King Xerxes, and tell him what's going on. And she said, no, I don't think so. He hasn't requested to talk to me in a month. And if I just walk in there, he might have me killed. That could possibly happen even to the king's wife, the queen. So Nehemiah couldn't just waltz right in. He needed God to work in this situation and give him favor, which is what we're going to see in chapter 2 next week. Anyway, this person who seems to be your version of this ancient king, have you considered praying about it? Have you considered asking God to show you favor and open some doors for you and then being patient? A couple things as we wrap. I, I can't help but feel like Nehemiah's situation and decision is a little bit like that, that, that of Jesus, what, what Paul describes for Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Think about Nehemiah's life. I understand he could die in that position. But other than that, he had it pretty good. He was the king's, probably his best friend, his right-hand man. He was probably the second most powerful person in the entire empire of Persia. He was eating well. He was living well. And now they come to him and they say, we need your help with this wall. And so he was going to leave a place of great safety and security and poshness. And he was going to go to a place of great danger, of hard work where his influence wouldn't matter very much to any of the people that he was going to. That's what Paul describes for Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Let me read it for you. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, see the world the way Jesus sees it. Have the same attitude about life in this world that Jesus had. Who? Jesus Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus was hanging out with the Father and the Holy Spirit. 
just ruling stuff from heaven. And yet he took on the assignment to come down here to a very dangerous place, which was proven true for him as a human being and as God, and made himself available to serve us in this way. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him. Are you, are you personally thriving, but it might be costing you something when it comes to your commitment and relationship with God? You thought about it that way? Here's, here's the second thing. Nehemiah is content not to change the world, but to work in and serve his world. You understand that being in Susa and in Persia and having that position of influence, he, he might have been able to get pretty full of himself and say, I could change the world. We unfortunately, and I know this is true from both of my contexts, both church contexts and in the academy, teaching in colleges, essentially the message to everybody, and most people seem to believe it, is that they are going to be the next Bono. They are going to be the next Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They are going to be the next person who changes the world. I'm going to change the world. And then when the harsh realities of this world and this life press in on that person and they begin to realize they're struggling to change jobs, let alone change the world, it becomes discouraging and they fold. And they don't realize that maybe God is calling them to be an influence and a changer in their world. Small and insignificant as it might be. Nehemiah is called by the people of God and by God himself to go to this tiny little outpost that had been obliterated hundreds of years before and to help rebuild it potentially at the cost of his own life. And Nehemiah goes, and we're going to see in the chapters that fall, he's a great follow, he's a great leader. And he relies on God for everything. And he becomes that person of change and influence that so many people think they want to be, but he does it in his narrow, little, God-ordained context. And that's something that we should all look at as well. Let's pray together. Lord God, we need to be reminded that only Jesus changes the world. We need to be reminded that when we get full of ourselves, that really it was Jesus who went to the cross to give us the power of God and the filling of the Holy Spirit to be influencers in our world. We need to be reminded that although things may be going well in our worldly lives, and there's nothing wrong with that, I say yay and yes to all of that, but we need to be reminded that those things can also get in the way of our life with you. So help us to understand those things that really you're the priority, the way Nehemiah sees you as the priority. And help us to understand that in the end, even Nehemiah could not do what Jesus did some 400 years later. So we thank you for that. We thank you for Nehemiah's example and we thank you for the sacrifice and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that in his name. Amen. So we're going to have a time of reflection and uh, response. We're going to sing one more uh, song together. We're going to take communion together. If you didn't get a uh, communion 
uh, packet. It's out in the lobby. Now would be a great time to go out there and, and grab that. We're coming up on that time in the Gospel of John after we get back into it where Jesus is sitting with his disciples that night that he's betrayed. And he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he takes the cup after they had eaten the bread. And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. It's my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we do it every week when we gather together. In many ways, it's the most important thing we do when we gather together. That's why it's important for us as a community to do this together. Because together, we get to confess our need for Jesus and celebrate that we have him. So let's do that now. The 
Lord God, uh, I thank you for what you brought to us through Frank, um, and Lord, I pray that you might use this service as a way to shape our week. Um, Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hi, church. Thank you so much for coming and worshiping with us. Uh, my name's Trey. I'm one of the pastors here, and today is Orientation Sunday, which means if you've been coming for a little bit or this is your first time here, I'd love to meet you. I'll be at the Connect Desk. I'm going to take about 10 minutes if you want to come and be a part of this, walk around the campus, um, and give you a little bit of the history and a little bit about who we are if you want to meet me and talk. I would love to meet you. Um, but I'm going to read our benediction as a prayer for us as we go into our week. Um, and then we can go and live all of our life off for Jesus. So this comes from Ephesians 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Thank you guys for being here. Love you. See you next week.